Well, we're in this series on healthy relationships, and I couldn't refuse going to this particular passage when I thought about healthy relationships for two reasons. One, it's a beautiful picture of two disciples discussing the things of the Lord, and it's Easter season for us. And this is one of the most beloved resurrection accounts in the Gospels, where Jesus meets uh, these disciples. And it's so masterfully told by Luke that we as the uh, readers know this is Jesus, but the disciples and the story don't. And, you know, there's just, it's just the craftsmanship of this account is beautiful. I suspect that Luke might have even been the companion with Cleopas. We don't know. It could have been his wife. We don't know. Only Cleopas is named, but there are two disciples, not apostles, going on this road to Emmaus. And I love that their conversation is so Christ-centered. It's so about what has happened. This is right after the people, uh, the disciples, the women had returned from the tomb and said, we've seen an angel and the Lord is risen. And they were marveling and wrestling with that. And there was doubt all over the place um, in the the group of the disciples. And these two are walking on this road. And it says in verse 14, they were talking with each other about all these things that had happened. They were discussing Christ, his ministry, I imagine they were reflecting on the three years he spent in his public ministry, much of which they probably saw. They were, of course, reflecting on the crucifixion, and they thought our hopes had come to an end here, despite what Jesus said was going to happen, and despite what these women at the tomb said had happened, and they were discouraged, but they were talking about it. They were processing it together. Their faith was not just something that was private, even though it is personal, It was something that is meant to be shared, and they were processing that together. And the question I'm asking of myself, and I share with you as well, is, is Jesus a regular part of my conversations? Do I bring my faith into my friendships, my relationships, my family, or do I kind of hide it? I hide my light under a bushel, so to speak, or I keep my faith just very close, private. These guys were very open, talking about the things that were happening, so much so that a, another person on that path could overhear them and ask about it. They were not trying to be secretive about the gospel. They were processing it. They were talking about it. Do you talk about your faith? If you're a Christian, do you, do you salt your conversations with things of faith in the Lord? As we think about relationships Uh, This is my main point. Christ-centered relationships go the deepest. Christ-centered relationships go the deepest. And no matter how hard you try to develop a friendship with someone who is not a believer, there will always be an awkwardness there. There will always be a desire on your part to explain what God is doing in your life, and they won't get it. There will be a big breakdown. Now, the saying a little bit as, you know, I guess cheesy as it is, the family that prays together stays together. It's helpful. The family that prays together brings Christ into the midst of it, and it becomes bigger than its own family unit. It's something that is growing together. I like the image of a triangle with two, two points down here and Christ at the top. As you go closer to Christ, you are naturally getting closer to one another. And that can happen not just in your family, it can happen in your friendships and with coworkers and with others. When you find someone who also believes in Christ, there is a kindred spirit there. It is something that is sort of hard to describe, but there's a knowing between you and these other people that are Christians. You serve a higher Lord. You're not just worldly. 
And friendships with people who don't have that are limited. It makes us question uh, if you're in a season or phase of life where you're considering dating, it should make you question whether or not someone would be a suitable companion for marriage. And I would dissuade you strongly from trying to marry somebody who is not a believer. Your marriage will only be able to go so deep and then it'll get stuck and it might even cause your faith to struggle. I would encourage you, find a believing partner. I would encourage you in your friendships, find Christian community because those are the relationships, one, that will go deepest in this life, but two, that are eternal, that will last forever. I like how the Apostle Paul, speaking of our interaction with people outside of the, the church, outside of the faith, unbelievers, um, encourages us to consider our speech. He says, um, and this is in Colossians 4, he says, walk in wisdom towards outsiders, making the best use of the time. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how, to, how you ought to answer each person. I'm not saying be that person who just is like gushing Jesus all the time. Don't be that person. But be that person who is so full of Christ that that comes through. Don't hide it. Don't be embarrassed about it. In those conversations, be asking God, Lord, what would you have happen in this interaction? Invite him in to those interactions with family members, with friends, with coworkers, with whomever you come into conversation with. Invite Christ in. Now, this, this account of the road to Emmaus um, conversation, I, I find is, is so powerful and is so filled with Christ. There are a number of things in here that would be worthy of an entire sermon. As I thought through what it tells me about Jesus, I found five things. That's more than a typical three-point sermon. I'm sorry. You're getting a bonus extra two this morning. Sorry if I'm disappointing you. But I found five things that were true of Christ then and are still true of Christ today. And as we think about how to add seasoning and salt to our conversation, these five things are worthy of those conversations, of bringing them into your friendships, your relationships. And being the Easter season, the first and greatest one of this passage is the fact that Jesus is actually alive. He is really risen. This is not a Sunday school tale. This is historical detail. He is alive, which means even though he's unseen, he is ruling the universe. He is actively ruling the universe. And the Easter season helps us remember this, but it's not just for Easter season. It's for all time. This is something that will only increase in glory as time goes on. Christ is at work in his world, in his created universe. He is ruling it and is constantly um, intersecting it and, and coming into our lives and doing lots of different things. He's active in our lives. Those who are not believers deny it or dismiss it when something happens that seems to be a God thing. I had a conversation with a man, a number of conversations a while back, um, who was really sort of frustrated in his life. He was feeling a little lost, and he was praying. I'm not exactly sure to whom, but he was praying um, sort of to the universe or if there be a God, you know, that kind of prayer, which I think the Lord honors, actually. He's kind of reaching out to as best he knows, and he had a vision. He had a vision in that time of prayer that led him to a conversation with me. And in that conversation, I was very clear about what the good news is and that it is good news. I shared the gospel with him. I prayed for him. I met with him a number of times. And he finally came to the conclusion that he just 
dismissed the whole thing. He didn't want any part of it. He just did not want to accept that God is alive and, and started to say, well, I just, I just want some friendships. I don't, I don't want all this talk about religion. And I said, well, I want friendships that go deeper. I don't want shallow because I can't share with you what matters most to me. So a big part of who I am, I can't share with you because you won't receive it. And I kept pointing them back to the vision. I said, you were praying and God gave you a vision. Your life was not satisfied. Don't forget the vision. But he continues to dismiss it. And it frustrates me. And I think about how Christ is alive. And he says, where two or three are gathered in my name, I'm in the midst of them. Which is what Dan used as a call to worship this morning. And to have that fellowship with Christ and his body is so valuable to us. Christ is alive. And this this account on the road to Emmaus shows us that. So Jesus presents himself as alive is the first thing. The second thing is that Jesus seeks out those who are discouraged. Look at verse 21. As they're describing Jesus as a man and a mighty prophet and how the chief priests and rulers delivered him over to be condemned to death and crucified, it says, but we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Past tense, we had hoped. In other words, we are despairing now. We thought he was the one, but since he died on a cross, clearly he is not. They were discouraged and frustrated and just downcast. And Jesus seeks out such people. He came to them and brought hope. He lifted their spirits. The, in Luke's gospel, the direction of people's travel is really important. If you look at all the, the different nouns and or verbs in there, you see a lot of traveling verbs, walking towards, going. And in Luke chapter 9, it says that Jesus set his face towards Jerusalem. And he goes on this task of getting to Jerusalem. And in this passage, after the resurrection, these guys are heading away from Jerusalem. And Jesus goes after them and encourages them on the road. And when they finally see the truth, they turn around and that very night run the seven miles back to Jerusalem, proclaiming he's alive. We've seen him. He's alive. They were discouraged and Christ gave them hope and encouraged them. He points out their slowness of heart to understand and opens the scriptures to their mind. And he still encourages us today. This isn't reserved just for that physical resurrection appearance, but the Lord is still in the business of assuring our hearts. Listen to this benediction from um, Paul's letter to the Thessalonians. I don't know why I haven't used this one more in church, but I'm going to because I really like it. It says, Paul writes, Now may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father, who loved us and gave us eternal comfort and good hope through grace, comfort your hearts and establish them in every good work and word. May the Lord Jesus Christ himself comfort your hearts and establish them in every good work and word. In other words, how you're in conversations, the words you share. Are your conversations seasoned with salt? Is Christ in there? He'll comfort your heart if you're discouraged and then establish you in every good word. This is something that Paul says Jesus is doing himself still today, through his spirit, of course, but he is doing that. He seeks out those who are discouraged and encourages them. The third thing is Jesus extends their knowledge. In verse 19, as Jesus asked what they were discussing, they said, oh, well, we're talking about Jesus. You know, he was a man and a prophet who did mighty works before God and man. And they were right. He was a man and he was a prophet. But their, their knowledge was limited. And Jesus extends their knowledge. And he says in verse 26, 
that, this, that he's far more than just a man and far more than just a good prophet. In verse 26, he says, was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? In other words, yes, he's a man. Yes, he's a prophet. He's also the Messiah, the one anointed by God to come and to conquer death on the cross and be raised and enter into glory. The, the good news of the gospel is that we are far more broken than we realized, but he loves us and has grace for us that is greater than we could imagine. I mean, really, it goes both ways. It shows us really how far we down we are, but then how good the message is, how good his grace is. And Jesus is the one who makes that possible, the son of God. So we see that he is alive. He seeks out the discouraged, and then he extends their knowledge of himself and reveals himself. The fourth thing that I see in here is that Jesus fulfills all of the scriptures. This whole book is Christian scripture. It's not the Jews' Bible with the Christians' Bible tacked on. The whole thing is about Christ. And therefore, I'm not a big fan of those little pocket New Testaments that sometimes people give out because you don't get the background. You don't get all the stuff that is explained and fulfilled. You, you get these references to it, but you can't look back and see where it is. The whole scripture is Christian scripture. And beginning with Moses and the prophets and the writings, Jesus opens their minds to see how the whole thing points to him. He brings all these scriptures into that conversation. In theological study in seminary, they call that the, 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 the particular study discipline is called biblical theology. Or you might have heard of it as um, the golden thread that runs through all of Scripture, where right from the very beginning, Christ is present in the creation. All things were created through him, and he is present all the way through. And all these themes of God and his grace and seeking out people who have fallen and coming and having an intercessor like Moses standing before the people and all these different things, the temple, the land, the land of Canaan, the promise, out of Egypt, all that stuff is fulfilled in Christ He's the fulfillment of it. The whole scriptures are Christian scriptures. Jesus fulfills the the scriptures and teaches them that. And then the fifth thing is that Jesus opens eyes to see him in the breaking of bread. As a Eucharistic church, one that really values the sacraments and we make a big deal of communion, have it every week. I love this passage. I know that Cleopas and his companion were not in the upper room because it was just the 11 and Jesus, well, Judas was there too at the first part of that at the meal. So only those guys would have seen him take the bread and give thanks and break it and give it to them. But I believe that Luke, who was writing for a much broader audience and writing to a church that was established, I think he makes a reference here to the Eucharist. He makes a reference here to the, the Lord's Supper that the church was now regularly starting to have by the time he wrote this. And how powerful it is when we remember what Christ has done and we break bread and we engage in this sacrament that God so oftentimes opens hearts to see him and be assured that we're forgiven. I've never, I've come across a lot of quotes and things from John Wesley, but I'd never until this week come across a quote from his mom. I thought that was kind of cool. Like, you know, normally we quote John Wesley. Well, I've got a quote from John Wesley's mom today. And, and John Wesley, his mom's name was Susanna. And, and when she was in a church service and the words of administration were said, which is what we say when we give you the body of Christ, this is the body of our Lord Jesus Christ. 
Uh, by the way, as a side note, the correct response is not thank you, although that's very polite. The correct response is amen. This is the body of Christ. Amen. In other words, I believe it. Yes, surely this is true. You can say thank you too if you want. You're very polite. But a better response is to, to affirm this is true. This is the body of our Lord Jesus Christ, which is given for you. And when those words of administration were said, um, this is what she wrote. The words struck through my heart, and I knew God, for Christ's sake, had forgiven me all my sins. That's what John Wesley's mother said in a, in a moment when she, her eyes were opened to behold Christ in the breaking of the bread. And I love in verse 32 in this passage, it says, after Jesus vanishes from their sight, they said to each other, did not our hearts burn within us while he talked with us on the road and while he opened to us the scriptures? That very phrase is the one that John Wesley now, not his mom, but John Wesley used in his conversion story. He described it as feeling his heart strangely warmed. And he writes in his journal about um, the account from 1738, May 24th. In his journal, he writes, in the evening, I went very unwillingly to a society in Aldersgate Street where one was reading Luther's preface to the epistle to the Romans. About a quarter before nine, while he was describing the change which God works in the heart through faith in Christ, I felt my heart strangely warmed. I felt I did trust in Christ, Christ alone for salvation. And an assurance was given me that he had taken away my sins, even mine, and saved me from the law of sin and death. Jesus opened his eyes, the eyes of his heart, so to speak, to behold him. And his heart was strangely warmed. It's the exact same thing Jesus did on the road to Emmaus, and he still does it today. People use different words to describe it, but that's the experience. I was blind, and now I see. God came to me, and I had this assurance that I was forgiven, and I realized that Christ had paid for my sins. And people come alive in that moment. So just a quick recount, five things. Jesus presents himself as alive. He seeks out the discouraged. He extends their knowledge of himself. He fulfills the scriptures, and he opens eyes to see him in communion. Here's the application. I want you to share Christ in your relationships. I want you to bring your faith to bear in those interactions. Bring Christ with you into those interactions, including your struggles, it doesn't have to be always, you know, I've always got the right answer. I'm the, that Christian guy who's got like the right verse every time for the right thing. It's okay to sometimes say, I don't know why God is not answering this prayer. I'm frustrated, but I know he's good and I'm trusting him. Or pray for me, I'm struggling with this. I love, I love doing that with actually non-believers sometimes. I mean, I can't hide my profession, so they already know I'm a Christian and I, I'm a pastor. But and as they're asking about my life in any way, if I am struggling with something, I'll ask them to pray for me. And I'll say, yeah, I'm really frustrated with this. I've been asking God for such and such, and it's not happening, and I'm not sure why, but I'm praying about it. Would you pray for me? And it's just, you know, sometimes they say, yeah, I will. <laughs> why not? right? Bring your faith into conversations with people. I have a friend named Mrs. Kiri Layson who was one of the leaders when I was in high school youth group. She was a mom then who had kids that were in the youth group. And Mrs. C, as we called her, um, continues to do youth ministry up there. So that was, you know, 25 years ago. She's been doing youth ministry for like three decades. Mrs. C no longer just hangs out with the girls in her Bible study. She takes them usually in one-on-one -on -one or in pairs to Starbucks or some restaurant, and she talks about faith with them. 
every time. And, and she was very explicit about it and said, you know, I've been doing this a long time, and as much as it's fun to just sit there and talk about whatever they want, I want to bring faith into this. They can talk about their other interests with their friends whenever they want. I want to help them meet Christ. So she is intentional in those meetings, and it's very effective. God has used it in a mighty way. She ministers Christ to them, and they expect that. And they, they would be disappointed if she didn't talk about Christ with them. I want to encourage you to share Christ in your relationships, including your struggles. And then the second thing is I want you to pursue Christian community. Explicitly pursue Christian community. Look for friends who have Christ in their life because it will encourage you. It will strengthen you. It's like the old illustration of the hot coal in the fire taken away by itself, turns black and cold and dark, and you bring it back by the fire, it gets red hot again. Get around other Christians to encourage you in this life. You need other Christians. You can't go it alone. God didn't intend it to be that way. He strengthens his people through his people, and we need Christian community. Yes, we need to witness to those outside of the Christian community, but if all your friendships are with non-believers, then you're the one who's always trying to pull them up, and it's like trying to save 10 drowning people. You are going to go under the water. It pulls you down. You need the support of other believers to help you. Healthy relationships have Christ at the center. Bring him into your relationships and pursue people who know Christ. Would you pray with me? Lord, I want to thank you for the church, your body in this world, and I want to thank you for those who are believers in our lives. Thank you for the encouragement we receive from them. Lord, I pray that you'd give us courage to talk about our faith openly. And Lord, if we're embarrassed because our faith is weak, I pray that you would draw us into deeper fellowship, that we would be like the Apostle Paul who says, woe to me, woe to me, and has to preach. Would you help us to share our faith? And Lord, I pray for the man I made a reference to who has not accepted your vision. Would you be merciful to him and bring him to a saving knowledge of yourself? Bring him into your kingdom, Lord. I pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.